0: Our reading tonight is from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom... He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate.
1: Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. It's actually my first time at the Keswick Convention. (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. Uh, For those who've uh, come repeatedly, you may have seen my name on the program a couple of years ago. I was supposed to be here then and and fell ill when I was was unable to come, and um, I feel like um, uh, James has um, got his own back on me now and and has given me uh, lots of talks to do um, to make up for the lost time, but it really is a blessing. Um, I was born and raised in South London, but of Jamaican heritage, so if it at times sounds like I'm speaking in tongues... (laughs) It's not my Pentecostal roots showing, I'm just trying to do my best impression of the king's speech. (laughs) I heard a few groans then. (laughs) As we consider the theme this week of being human, we come to a most necessary of considerations. We consider being human in the light of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, which is great news. And yet, in order to best appreciate the great news, we must also understand and appreciate the bad news. Permit me to pray as we look to the text, if you will. Let's pray. Lord, please help me to share with clarity and brevity Please give us ears to hear what you will say by your spirit. And may that be with surrendered sincerity. We ask this in your name. Amen. Last night we heard from Jeremy how God created humanity with definition and distinction in our identity and authority. Humanity was created with immense promise and potential as God's image bearers. And if someone were to have closed the Bible at the end of chapter one, and looked around at life as we know it, we would not fault them for asking what happened. Where and when did it all go so wrong? Despite all the promise and potential laden in the first chapter of the Bible, human history is immeasurably removed from what would have been expected for all of our many amazing technological, medical, and other scientific advancements. Humanity is not morally any better. In fact, we constantly find new ways to be worse. In the now immortalized words of the crew of the Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. Now, many won't know that they are not the actual words that were communicated by the crew of the Apollo 13. This is the crew that went to space after the uh, original Apollo 11 um, moon landing and they suffered an explosion of an oxygen tank on their lunar service module. And that famous phrase was stylized for the purposes of dramatic effect for the Hollywood film. What they actually said were words in the past tense. Houston, we have had a problem. These words are all the more poignant for us as we look back at Genesis 3. As we approach our text this evening, we address a fundamental issue that is universally self-evident we have had and continue to have a problem. The transatlantic slave trade, the Holocaust, the killing fields, the Rwandan genocide, the Holodomor massacre. It is easy to see from these examples representations of the human problem. They don't get more graphic than scenes from the Holocaust, scenes from the Killing Fields and the Khmer Rouge. And yet, even then, most in life would say, these are extremes. I mean, I'm not really a bad person. I'm nothing like Hitler. This is a crucial point. Most wouldn't deny that we have a problem. The issue is how we define the problem. That's important. This is crucial to our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of God's work in Christ Jesus. How we understand the problem will inform how we view the solution. Last night, Jeremy highlighted the highly controversial nature of Genesis 1 in our own life and times. And yet in the recent past, Genesis 3 was the subject of such controversy. Is the human problem one of nurture or nature? Do we become or are we born this way? Are we products of our environment, basically good, or are we fatally flawed from within? The way a person chooses to answer those questions shapes their understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection if it is such that our flaws, and we'll call them that for the moment, are the result of how we are nurtured, it suggests that people are fundamentally good and that Jesus is merely an example that we are to follow. It suggests that we as humans are the means to save ourselves. We have that capacity within us. This is what is suggested if people would say our flaws and failings are merely nurtured. And yet on the other hand, if our flaws are the result of having a fundamentally corrupt nature, then our flaws are fatal. It suggests that actually we cannot help ourselves at all. This then presents Jesus as the Savior sent to rescue us even from our own selves. As we turn our attention to Genesis 3, let me take a moment to assert that our confidence that the information of Genesis 3 is trustworthy and coherent comes from Jesus himself. There are those who debate about the nature of the text and that which the Lord has communicated through it. And yet, we recognize that Jesus quoted several times from the early chapters of Genesis, validating it himself. Now, he who was openly and empirically declared to be the Son of God through his life, death, and resurrection is surely sufficient validation for us to take Genesis 3 as God's word. There may be some who claim to know better, i.e. better than God. I'm not one of them. Regardless of the work we may have to do, to understand the way God has chosen to communicate through the author of Genesis, we know the information given is true and authoritative because of Jesus' validation. It is definitive in its view of God and our human experience. Now, I mentioned that I was born and raised in London, and I have the joy and the privilege of working for London City Mission, which is a a mission agency that um, started maybe just about 40 years before the Keswick Convention. So uh, is this the 148th year I heard? Yeah. So uh, 188 years ago, London City Mission was started by David Naismith, with the expressed intent of bringing the gospel to those least likely to hear it. And today, London has changed, but the mission remains the same. There are gospel-deprived areas in London where people are least likely to hear of Jesus Christ. That may come as a little bit of a surprise in such a Highly populated and church city such as London. A recent survey by Talking Jesus revealed that one in two Londoners don't have a Christian family member or friend to talk to them about Jesus or invite them to church. One in two Londoners. Clearly, this is a tragedy. And in many of these gospel deprived areas, we see that they are not only gospel deprived, but most often socially and economically deprived also. It's as if the two can very often go hand in hand. In fact, in some of the places that we work in London, we are seeing overt expressions of human depravity one of our field directors Annie Udin was sharing Jesus in Pentonville prison she shared this story with us at the thanksgiving service that we had recently as she was sharing the gospel in in Pentonville she was met after the service by an inmate who who was convicted not legally, but, well, obviously legally, but also spiritually convicted in response to a direct gospel challenge that had been given. In Annie's challenge, she stated the concern that someone was about to commit a sin that would ruin the rest of their life. Now, understanding the context, she's standing in prison That's probably not very hard to imagine. People have already done that, right? Which is why they're there. They could do more, they could do worse, ruin things even more than they already were. And yet this inmate came up to Annie afterwards and says they were about to be released and had prepared to collect a gun in order to take vengeance on someone. Someone. In that instance, as she heard the the call of the gospel and the challenge that that was given, she submitted her life to Jesus, realizing that God in his loving kindness was speaking to her through Annie. Some would suggest that places like prisons and the stairwells of council estates and drug houses and so on are those places where we would see human depravity displayed in all of its gory glory. And yet actually, as we look at Genesis 3, we see the ultimate expression of human depravity. Most often when hearing the word depravity, we consider the quote-unquote worst of sinners. Sinners. But as I have heard it said, the best of sinners is worse than the worst of sinners. The best of sinners is worse than the worst of sinners. Sounds a bit like a tongue twister, but it will become a little clearer in just a moment. It's important that we understand that human depravity is not defined by departure from social norms or standards of human morality. It is fundamentally defined by our departure from God. Human depravity is not defined by departure from social norms or human morality. It is fundamentally defined by our departure from God. And as we look at Genesis 3, this is what we see depicted and that in the first instance. Consider this. In our society, many acts that were once regarded as expressions of depravity have now been legalized. Human morality shifts and yet God alone is the unchanging reference by which human depravity can be ultimately defined. This is what we see in the verses. And so I'm going to just walk us in large steps through the text in three movements. In the first movement, we see deception in verses 1 to 5. In the second movement, we see defiance, in verses 6 and 7. And in the third movement, we see denial, in verses 8 to 13. Question. Who is the first character that we meet in the text? in verse 1. You don't all have to answer at once, it's okay. (laughs) It's the snake. Snake is the first character that we meet in the text. And by insight of Revelation chapter 12, we understand that the snake is Satan. He's introduced to us without backstory as the craftiest of all creation. And that title is clearly justified as his first recorded words proceed to put God on trial. You see, Satan puts God on trial and yet does so with such a deceptively simple and yet deadly question. In verse 1, did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This question forms his opening argument at the trial of the Most High God. With the sentiment of this one expression, Satan manages to question God's word and his very nature. He questioned God's word because his version was not the same as what God said. God never said they could not eat from any tree. And yet he also questioned God's nature because God said they could eat from every tree Except one. And so here he questions God's word and God's nature being good. God was not miserly and mean and unkind, as is insinuated by Satan's question. Did God say, You can't eat from any tree? Answers no. And yet, with this question, he implicitly suggests to Eve that Eve and Adam are not only worthy to sit in judgment of God's choices, they are able to dethrone God as supreme judge of right and wrong. Question God. Is it right what he said? And yet also, Satan seems to insinuate in his question that they are entitled to the very thing that God had withheld. Eve digests this notion in an instant. And now being deceived, she follows suit as she misrepresents and maligns God in verses 2 and 3. Her response, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Mm. Eve presents a veiled attempt to correct Satan but then evidently subscribes to the proposed mutiny by adding to God's word something that he never said. God never said that they could not touch the fruit or they would die. In saying this, Eve was now insinuating that and suggesting that God was stricter and more austere and mean than they knew him to be. Seeing Eve's agreement, Satan closes the transaction and states explicitly the lie that is up to this point insinuated. You will be like God. Hmm. What a prospect! you will be like God. You will have complete autonomy. You will have complete authority and decision-making power over your life, over your world. The very reason Adam and Eve could sin was because although they were made perfectly innocent and complete, they were not divine. James 1 tells us, only God cannot be tempted by sin. It is beyond his nature. Adam and Eve were very aware of this distinction between creation and creator. And yet, as Dr. Don Carson would say, Adam and Eve endeavored to de-God God. What motivated this was nothing other than pride. And we can say this confidently because of what we are told in the first chapter of James, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. This insight given by the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the anatomy of the fool. Side note, I often struggle to call the fool the fool. It, it, the fool strikes me as something that is... Um, Not intended, something that maybe is just more accidental. To me, as I read the text, it's less of a fall and more of a dive. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks like that. Whilst we can't say how this pride came to convince them to attempt such a coup, we do know that Satan's suggestion met with a desire in their heart by which they were drawn away. Satan's means, his tool, his device was deception. And yet he wasn't the only one guilty of deception in this interaction. Eve and Adam were also guilty of the worst form of deception, self-deception. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Maybe it was the pride of a perfect appearance, or having done no wrong up to that point, that had them reading their own reviews, believing their own hype. Or as we would say in South London, have them gassed enough to deceive themselves into thinking they could be God, God and exhort themselves to be like him. It is often when we are at our best that we are most vulnerable to sin. Our Achilles heel is that our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. This is the most dangerous of all departures from God and the height of depravity. As the saying goes, the best of sinners is worse than the worst of sinners. It is so much more easy for the best of sinners to be caught up in pride. And pride is the strength of sin. As we look at the second movement, we see defiance. In verses 6 and 7. And two things to note here as we see Adam and Eve flat out defy God. The first thing we know is the fruit of the tree was not bad in and of itself. It states in verse 6 that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make one wise. In and of itself, it was good. And yet, it is not merely the bad things that we do that demonstrate our depravity. Actually, as we see here, it's the good things we make ultimate and with which we displace God. The tree was the object of Eve's desire, her lust and that because it was worth desiring. It's not everything that God doesn't want us to involve ourselves with that is necessarily bad. But when we make a good thing, an ultimate thing, an idol, we have displaced God. The second thing I know is that after they had defied God, Contrary to the promise made by Satan, you will be like God. They were actually painfully aware of how unlike God they were. In verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So painful was this realization that they sought to hide, not only from God but from each other. Sowing fig leaves for covering. You see, this is what sin does. It leaves us exposed and undone. As Hebrews 4 verse 13 states, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. They were always naked before God, but became aware of it at the point their consciences were inflamed and they became accountable for sin. It never ceases to amaze me, as I have done ministry for over three decades among the forgotten, overlooked, and marginalized, how so often they don't need convincing of how sinful they are, that they are not good enough for God. Actually, In those contexts, that's often a default recognition. I'm not good enough for God. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person. It's actually convincing them that God so loved the world that he gave his son for them, that can be the biggest challenge. As they defied God, they were brought to that place where they recognized they were naked and undone. The third and final movement, we see denial in verses 8 to 13. Endeavoring to hide from God, I note two things. In verse 8, God made the first move toward them. They heard him walking in the garden. Secondly, I note that rather than repent, Adam and Eve's response was to deny responsibility by shifting the blame. Adam says in verse 12, the woman you put here, basically, it's your fault, God. Eve says, the devil made me do it. The snake deceived me. Shifting blame, denying responsibility. These things that we have seen, doubting God's word and his goodness, pride, lust, followed by shame and blame, are the fundamental expressions of our sinful nature. They constantly betray the reality, totality, and depth of our human depravity. We don't have to be the worst of sinners to be recognized as depraved. We just have to depart from God to displace Him and dethrone Him just as we have seen Adam and Eve do here. Sin is ultimately the displacing of God and this is the cause of death. What we have witnessed was a mutiny, it was a coup, the highest form of treachery, soaked in deceit and rooted in pride. The late Dr. Mike Ovey, my former principal at Oak Hill College, said it like this, we humans are inexhaustibly curved in on ourselves. It was one of those sayings of his that took me probably a good year to work out what he was talking about. It was only when he gave a demonstration of us being entirely self-centered, focused entirely on ourselves, that I realized what he meant by being curved in on ourselves constantly. We are given to demote God and promote ourselves, reject his authority and seek our own autonomy. It is here we see the root of the problem with human existence. The heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. In the unread verses of chapter 3, we see a picture of decreation as God righteously and fairly judges sin. Corruption is introduced to every facet of human experience. And the death that God warned of arrives. First spiritual, And then natural. Even the very environment is corrupted by the sin and its consequence. And yet, in this picture of seeming hopelessness, we see redemption foretold. In Genesis 3, verse 15. We read what is regarded as the proto-evangelion, the first reference to the gospel, as God speaks to Eve: And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, God would not leave his most precious creation in corruption. Jesus, as the fulfillment of this prophecy, the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of Satan, denied himself, and sacrificially assumes responsibility for our sin. We will hear more of this tomorrow, and yet even now we're able to be encouraged at the picture of God's love and power, that through the Lord's ultimate submission, his death on our behalf, he makes us alive again, heals our depravity, and makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Quite a bleak picture, quite stark, and yet there is hope. That hope isn't found in ourselves, just doing better. It's found in surrendering our autonomy to Jesus and trusting in his finished work of victory over sin and Satan. Let's bow ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for the honesty of your word that we're able to hold up like a mirror and see ourselves. Lord, we recognize that as we look at our forebears, Adam and Eve, we see a picture of ourselves. Guilty of treachery against you. Filled with shame and ready to blame and deny responsibility and Dodge accountability. And yet in your love, you pursued us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to bring before you every idol that jostles in our hearts, every idol that wrestles with our hearts for superiority over you and your place. Forgive us. Where we have exalted ourselves above you. Forgive us where we have made even good things ultimate and make us anew again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.